There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The secret to summer-ready skin is here. Osea's number one best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil, clinically proven to instantly improve skin elasticity and transform dry skin to silky, soft, and unbelievably glowing. Its signature scent of freshly squeezed grapefruit, cypress, and mango mandarin transports you to sun-kissed summer days. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. Yo, technology, what is it all about? What does the metaverse look like in 2050? That's a hard thought experiment, but it's probably not unreasonable to suggest that it's going to be ubiquitous and powerful. And there is going to be a reliance on our physical bodies to engage with that system, which means that the threshold for the desire for a failing human body to get that technology will drop and drop and drop. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley, your weekly dispatch from behind the scenes and inside the minds of the top people in tech. As always, I am your host, Danny Fortson. The West Coast correspondent for the Sunday Times. And this week, we're going back to one of my favorite topics the brain, specifically brain computer interfaces. Of course, most of us know about or have heard about Neuralink, which is Elon Musk's startup in this whole world. And what they have done is created a robot to drill a hole in your skull, implant superfine electrodes into your brain with the ultimate goal of merging with artificial intelligence, turning us all into cyborgs and saving the human race. None of that is a joke. That is exactly what Neuralink wants to do. But like most of Musk's projects, it has been super hyped, but very delayed. And what it has got to this point thus far is it's done this with a a monkey that has apparently been able to play a video game with its mind, but he has yet... Musk has yet to implant the first device in humans. That whole drilling a hole in the head thing, kind of a showstopper. But that is where this week's guest comes in. Tom Oxley is the founder of Synchron, which is a startup that has quietly beat Neuralink to the punch. So this month, it was announced that Synchron has successfully implanted its first brain implant in a human, in New York, and the initial goal is quite simple. Synchron is focused on severely paralyzed people, and by inserting a BCI, brain-computer interface, uh, the goal is to allow people to use digital devices like an iPhone, iPad, etc., with their thoughts alone. And the way this happens is that you put the device in, it looks like a stent, and it interprets intent, and then translates that 
into simple commands allowing someone with without the use of their hands, for example, to write an email, browse the web, whatever it may be. In short, it's the start of what could be just an incredible new era of this intertwining of man and machine. And this is what Tom, who's an, uh, from Australia, has done. He has a really fun story about how he ended up over here in America and then trying this crazy idea in the first place. He's raised, he just raised $40 million in a new financing round and Synchron is, you know, it's rolling. And he also talks about how Synchron's method, which goes through the jugular vein uh, up into the brain rather than, you know, the whole hold in the head thing is easier. Shocking. I know. Anyhow, we cover all of that and more. It's a really fascinating conversation. You will dig this one. So here he is, Tom Oxley, the founder of Synchron. Enjoy. Well, look, so there's lots I want to cover. And you may recall, uh, we spoke briefly, gosh, sometime last year, because I was doing a big kind of deep dive on all things brain computer interface. And I was totally intrigued by what you guys are up to. And then you guys have had, you know, quite an exciting week, an exciting announcement. So maybe we should start there. What's uh, what's the news? The news is that after years and years of development and testing, we have started our U.S. clinical trial with the first implant of a human subject in the U.S. of our implantable brain computer interface. And it's significant because we became the first company to receive from the FDA an IDE, which stands for Investigational Device Exemption, which is basically a kind of green light to go ahead with your clinical studies. And it's the first time the FDA has awarded a company an IDE for a permanently implanted BCI. Up to this point, there's been a huge amount of work over the last 20 years, you know, particularly the BrainGate system, the Utah Array in short-term implants in experimental academic settings and it's a milestone for the industry because it signifies the commencement of clinical studies for permanent implants so the patient is in new york and it was done at mount sinai west in new york city and it's on the back of you know we've had a, a clinical study program running in australia for a couple of years with four patients implanted and we're now kicking off our u.s program can you just explain so people can kind of visualize it what this implant looks like and also what it does it looks like a stent a stent if anyone knows most people think about stents as going into the heart yeah when you have a heart attack and it a stent essentially opens up in the blood vessel it looks like a scaffold so it's like a spring that opens up pushes on the inside of the blood vessel wall keeps the middle of the blood vessel open so blood can keep flowing and basically what we've done is figure out how to put electronics onto the surface of the stent. And I think what's kind of cool about this is, you know, one of the big problems in up to this point in brain computer interfaces has been how do you have the device sit inside the brain and not cause a foreign body reaction, not cause ongoing inflammation. And the blood vessels are a really neat way to do it because we've spent 40 years in cardiac medicine understanding how to build stents that can live in blood vessels forever. So it looks like a stent. It has a cable that's attached to the stent. Um, each sensor has a little cable and then there's a string of cables and then the cables 
exit out of the brain through the jugular vein. And then we have some electronics in the chest that sends out the information out of the body wirelessly. Via Bluetooth or something. Right. Got you. And so what is the function? So this patient, I'm presuming, has some type of paralysis or extreme paralysis. Yeah, the the guidance document from the FDA around the first use of a brain-computer interface is but most well described for the patient population that have paralysis. Right. So paralysis is the inability to control the muscles in your body. And there are many conditions that can cause paralysis. The most common ones are stroke, spinal cord injury, um, ALS, muscular dystrophy, multiple sclerosis. There's lots of things. And so the idea is for people who are paralyzed and you lose control of your hands, that you lose control of your ability to control digital devices or personal computers. Which these days is a very big deal. It's such a big deal. And we're all so dependent. You and I are talking on a podcast right now, which required me to, you know, do a few clicks, not that many clicks, but I didn't have to do that much work to get it going. But I had to tell the computer that's what I wanted to do. I had to, you know, do about four or five clicks. So with a very low number of inputs into a digital system, you can have a massive impact on quality of life. But mm. for people that don't have that ability to engage in even small you know, bits of yes and no, even like Amazon Alexa is great if your voice is working. But even that, you have to turn it on. You have to, you have to say yes or no. You have to still like, you know, do little things that engage with devices to make them work. So we're trying to help people who you know, have, have lost the ability to engage in, in personal computer control. So just so do I understand, so this patient and the patients in Australia with these implants, and I don't know if you, you would call them kind of brain-reading devices, but basically what, it allows them with their thoughts to do basic controls of devices. Is that right? Is that the kind of the upshot? Right. So when you say brain reading, it is brain reading in so much as there is a part of your brain that activates clearly when you're trying to move certain parts of your body and you're holding up your right hand and moving your fingers right now, there's a very predictable part of your brain that would be lighting up. Got you. So the brain reading happens only in as much as is needed to exert control over a you know small system and that system happens to be where we're focused is called the motor system which is the part of the brain that is totally dedicated to controlling the muscles in your body so it's kind of simple whether so we translate the attempted control of muscles into a bunch of ones and zeros and then turn those ones and zeros into the most fundamental command controls on a mouse and a keyboard that give you you know control over over a um, system and finally, just so I understand the functionality. So this person, they have this implant, they're looking at their iPhone. What is the connection between the machine in their body to that device that allows it to those controls to actually be executed? It's Bluetooth. So we use a Bluetooth. It's the same type of language that the wireless mouse or a wireless keyboard use to send command functions in over Bluetooth to control devices. Wow. So he can kind of scroll up, scroll down, press enter, etc. with his mind. Yeah, it's been cool. I, mean, I think I would characterize the way we're doing this as we have a team dedicated to classifying the brain reading component over the motor system. 
And, you know, we've got, you know, increasing library of different classifications now, which is growing. So, and then we've got the product team that is taking those classifications and converting them into a very usable UX that can be multi cross-platform. Got you. So this sounds like a very big deal and totally sci-fi. And that is a kind of a setup for, of course, what um, Elon Musk has talked about. Because, you know, when people think about the brain-computer interface, if they think about it at all, they maybe know of Neuralink, which is Musk's thing. And he, you know, he's known for his stunts. Like, you know, oh, a monkey was playing a video game with his brain using this implant that we've created. And I've written about Neuralink before. And it always just like, to me, it was like, cool, but it requires brain surgery. And that feels like, a, in terms of like barriers to entry, kind of a big deal that they've created a robot that drills a hole in your skull and then implants this thing directly into your brain. How you get it in the body is very different, correct? It's different. It's different. I mean, you know, there are many different ways to get into the brain. I think BCI is going to need a, a range of different ways to do it. You can get a lot of information if you go through the skull and directly into the brain, but it comes with challenges. Uh, challenges that have been addressed in other areas um, with there are other open brain surgery procedures, deep brain stimulation. So there is a precedent and it's it's going to be incredible technology. It's different to what we're doing. We've got we've got a way into the brain that utilizes the blood vessels. And, you know, I think we're talking about a massive problem here. Paralysis is a really big problem. And I think the more varied mechanisms we have of getting into the brain, the better this is going to be for patients. And I'm excited about the different avenues in. They're just different approaches with very different surgical workflows. I think what excites me most about the blood vessels, and I couldn't have ever predicted this or controlled for this or planned for this, but as it happens, you know, I, I started doing this 10 years ago when the, the field of physicians who were working on blood vessel-based brain procedures was very small. And breakthrough happened in 2015, completely different approach, but it was a mechanical treatment for stroke, which is basically a, when a blood clot goes up into the brain and it blocks. Yeah. Um, and in 2015, these incredible clinical trials came out showing that if you went up through the blood vessel, grabbed onto the clot and pulled it out and restored blood flow, it's been the biggest treatment modality shift in stroke ever. Oh, really? Yeah. And that happened in 2015. And because of that, there's been this massive proliferation of these types of physicians in this type of surgical or procedure room, it's not open surgery, it's minimally invasive surgery. They've proliferated. There are now thousands of these centers around the country. And so we're sitting now on the top of that wave, having figured out how to do electronics now. So the field is called neurointervention, and it's a really exciting time for neurointervention. And we're essentially bringing electronics into neurointervention. You're going in basically through the jugular, is that right? Jugular vein, yeah. yeah. So that type of procedure, you normally go in through the groin to the femoral artery or vein, yeah. the wrist, the radial artery, or you can go into the neck. And our technology is in the neck because we have to put electronics in the, in the chest. Got you. So getting electronics of this type, especially getting into the brain, that feels like a kind of a moment for humanity, potentially. Because we've written a lot about, like over the years, like, 
Facebook has tried to work on a brain-computer interface, and that's kind of come and gone. You have Elon Musk saying this is in his way, saying, you know, this is the key to human survival because we can basically merge with AI and kind of jack in directly to the web or the internet or whatever. Do you think about any of those things? Or are you just more, is it more just like we need to help the millions of people who are paralyzed? Or do you see that kind of that next step of, oh my goodness, this could actually be a beginning of a fundamental shift in you know what it means to be human? I do believe that Elon genuinely believes that this is going to be necessary for our species survival. It's not exactly how I'm thinking about what we're doing now. Um, I think the fact that Elon is in this space and with that ambition is incredible and brilliant. And, you know, that's, that's honestly what he's driving. You know, I think to be honest, like I think we're taking a more of a pragmatic approach right now around identifying a patient population who's really in need. And the patient population in need is that paralysis is this untreatable condition and BCI is going to be an incredible life-changing technology. Do I think it's a moment in history? I actually, I had the thought when we implanted the first patient back in, I think it was 2019 was our first implant in Australia. And when he woke up and I saw the technology in his brain and we saw the data from his brain streaming out on the system, it did feel to me like we're looking at something new. Yeah. And I think that was an exciting moment. I think, you know, I'm, I'm a physician and my co-founder is a, Rahul Sharma is the um, head of Stanford Interventional Cardiology. Mm. And we had, as a sort of, I guess, historian of medicine, the pacemaker that happened, like the, the cardiac pacemaker is kind of the archetypal medical device. It was you know, the biggest medical device company in the world is Medtronic, and they were founded really off the back of the cardiac pacemaker. And that was a major moment in human history. If you think about what the pacemaker was, it was kind of similar. It went in through a vein, it goes into the heart, and it leaves some electronics behind that you know, engages with the heart tissue. Actually, what we've built is really similar. It's a device that goes up to the brain, it goes through the blood vessels, goes through the veins, it sits in the chest, and it interacts with the brain. And yes, I, I do believe that as we go forward, I think over the next 20 to 25 year period, it's going to be a um, couple of decades of showing the technology safe, showing that it works, figuring out who it can help. And then it's going to get smaller, more distributed, more powerful. It's going to do more and more things. And the other thing that's going to happen over 20 years, I have no idea what the digital world is going to look like in 20 years pretty weird to look back what's happened over the last 10 or 15 years yeah yeah but the concept that as of 2022 we're pretty dependent on you know digital devices what's that going to look like in 20 years totally what is our tolerance for a loss of an ability to engage with that world as our body fails and our brain is still okay i would say that tolerance is going to be pretty low and so you know i believe that this technology if it's safe and invisible and effective and it can be done in a couple of hours in a cath lab yeah i think this could become a really massive industry and help a lot of people and at some point in the future probably on a 25-year horizon there might be a question over whether people really need it and it's starting to augment rather than help but it feels like that's still a long way away yeah 
you could argue that we're already kind of in a way kind of cyborgs the way we all and uh, if you you're in new york i'm sure you've you look up on the um this happened to me all the time when i was living in london you're like on the subway platform and you look up and literally every single person is just staring at their phone yeah i know exactly what you mean like thousands of people and you're like everybody's just staring at their palm you're like this is just fundamentally weird <laughs> yeah weird and you know like now normal you know and you'd like to think that people are doing productive things and i think you know there are productive things and non-productive things to do but as a species we are like orders of magnitude more productive than we were a couple of decades ago and we're on that trajectory but you know for people who once you get used to it and you you know your body is working you know, I, so we spoke to a patient uh, last week and he just got diagnosed with ALS mm. and he doesn't need our device yet. But we were talking to him because we wanted to get a f- sense of what it's like to know that your body is going to fail now. And that's what happens with ALS. And what he said was really interesting. He said, I know, like I'm now, he was quite young and he's got a family oh, and he now has been given this you know, sentence that over the course of the next few years, his muscles, he's going to lose control of his muscles. And he said, as soon as I lose my ability to use my hands, I need to find a way to engage with my technology because that's how I communicate. That's how I text. That's how I, that's how I do it. And he said, whatever it takes at that point, I'm going to need to figure it out. And he said something like, I'm going to need a new interface. Hmm. That's at the extreme end of the spectrum, but you know, we get old, our brains are working, maybe you break your hands, maybe you've got some nerve injury, maybe you've got really bad arthritis. There's all sorts of reasons why you might lose that capability. So that's what this technology is about, is making sure we're kind of keeping up our functionality. Right. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work you really really want it all to work out while you're away monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind when all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync things just flow wherever you are tap the banner to go to monday.com we had um on this podcast some months ago Brian, um, his last name escapes me at the moment, the founder of Kernel. Yeah, Brian Johnson. Yeah. And the thing that what they're doing is, you know, I put on their big helmet and, you know, play the game and all that stuff. And I was like, what is the kind of killer app for this thing? And he just said measurement, measurement itself of like basically seeing, understanding better what lights up in the brain when you're doing certain things, like a kind of effectively trying to map the brain to a degree that we haven't been able to now that seems he's like that is the killer app because that will unleash a whole new wave of products technologies stuff because we just have so little understanding of the brain do you agree with that is there are we at the start of this era of using technology to better understand the brain and then that being also a big unlock i do what brian has built with kernel the way i think about what brian's built is the best tool we've had to measure brain activity offline, which means, you know, do a period of recording and then do readout is fMRI, functional MRI. And Brian's vision is to mobilize that to then create a new way of 
measuring ways. I mean, with what we're doing, we need a 24 seven readout, like live online readout so that, you know, you can use it to, you're, you can use your brain in real time to engage with stuff. So yeah, I, I do. I do think that this is the beginning. It feels like the kind of, you know, I think neuroscientists would say, this is not the beginning. This is the culmination of years of work in academia. But I think what's happening now is the technology is now getting ready for, you know, main stage and commercial applications. And the way I think about that is the genome. The genome was decoded around the turn of the century. And that took a huge academic lift to, you know, firstly... Yeah, it was like $3 billion in 10 years or something like that. Right? Yeah. And then this whole industry spawned on account of, okay, now we know what the genome looks like. Let's start building tools that can engage with the genome and do stuff that's, that makes, you know, disease better. And I think that's where we're at with the brain mm. is that we now have these various tools we understand the pieces of how the brain works. And now we have the tools that are giving data flows of brain out. And so the, this is the beginning of an infrastructure that's now going to lead to a bunch of breakthrough in patient treatment. You know, when I started medicine, I went into neurology. I was thinking like, I wanted to do brain medicine and you know, it's got this reputation. It well, I'm I guess I'm getting a bit old now, but it when I started, like it had in like you know, 20 years ago, had a reputation that neurology is the backwater of medicine because you can diagnose everything, but you can't treat anything. Right, 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 right. And so there's a feeling that neuro is the final frontier in medicine, and these tools, this sort of emergence of this industry is going to galvanize and completely change the way we think about what's possible in, in brain health and brain medicine. So first of all, I think I'm guessing Australia is where you're from. I'm Australian. Yeah. Yeah. So how and why did you get involved with this? Because as you say, if you're kind of back in the day, you're like 20 years ago, you're like, I want to get into neuroscience, which is, you know, kind of a backwater in medicine. What kind of drove you to get into that? And then ultimately to start a company doing something that, you know, basically hasn't been done before. I think my personal story was as a teenager getting interested and curious in what I perceived to be the greatest remaining mysteries of our world. And I think space time and the brain, and I think I was pretty excited about what was in the ocean. The ocean felt like a big mysterious black box as well. The three <laughs> space, ocean, and the brain. Basically. I love it. But then I think I watched a couple of documentaries. I read some books and I was like, huh, it's like the brain is really dictating all of philosophy, like philosophy. I read philosophy now. It all comes back to a similar question of, you know, what is consciousness, which is really just a weird question when you start to understand how the brain works. It's, it's a question being anyway. So I got really intrigued by brain, decided got into medicine in Australia. There's no college. You just go straight to medicine. Mm. And so I started doing medicine and then I got some exposure in medical school to transcranial magnetic stimulation, which is like a form of non-invasive brain stimulation. And then I started doing internal medicine residency. And I remember I was on night shift and I came across this article in Nature magazine about this brain computer interface. And it was just like, I was like, what is that? That sounds, what is, what is that technology? So <laughs> yeah. 
And that was Lee Hochberg who published that from Brown University, who led the BrainGate team at that time. And I saw it in 2008. And that was the first time a human had had a device put inside their brain that did online real-time recording of brain activity. And it was used to control some type of external device. Gotcha. In that case, it was a big robotic arm sitting on a table in a laboratory. And they tried to commercialize that at the time. There's a company called, um, I think it was called Cyberkinetics. I think Jeff Stiebel was involved. And it was just way ahead of its time. And, you know, BlackRock kind of emerged out of that. They had the Utah Array and BlackRock have supplied the Utah Array. What is the Utah Array? The Utah Array was the, it was the component that contained the needles that were stuck into the brain. So the Utah Array was the implant and then the academic institutions had to build the computer power, the software, the kind of prediction algorithms, the control mechanisms. So it was this big academic effort between like, you know, 2006 to sort of now in multiple different centers around, particularly around the US um, with some incredible research proving that you could take off the skull, you could put needles into the brain and for a period of time, you could control things at a very high fidelity. Breaking that through into a commercial iteration has been a big challenge because you have to present to FDA, you have to have not only the implant, you have to have the signal processing, you have to figure out how it comes out of the head. Hopefully, it's all fully implanted. Going from a cable sticking out of the head to a fully internalized wireless system has been a massive undertaking. You then have to build the software platform. You have to find an application that's relevant. You have to patent protect all that stuff. And then you have to present to FDA and say, we are a company. We've got the entire system and we've tested the entire system in its entirety. I think up to the point, academics have sort of focused on different components and proven out different things are possible. And so, you know, Elon and Neuralink have raised a huge amount of capital to overcome that challenge. And I think... Part of the reason we've been able to move a little bit faster is that we we didn't have to break new grounds completely on the justification for what safety looks like inside a blood vessel because we were able to rest on the work that had come before us. I think you, I recall you mentioning when we spoke last year that there's a huge difference in just the sheer number of people who know how to do basically implant stents, which was the skill that is required for your implants as opposed to open brain surgery. Right. So the neurointerventional community up until 2010, 2012 was in the order of hundreds of people in the US, about the same number of functional open brain surgeons who can do the open brain surgery procedure that localizes to certain parts of the brain. But then in 2015, when this stroke treatment emerged, there's been this like order of magnitude increase in number. So as an example, but the reason for this is if you have a stroke, you need a neurointerventionist within the f within like 30 minutes of wherever your hospital is to come in and pull out the blood clot. Uh, so, you know, I'm in Brooklyn right now. There's a there's a hospital about 45 minutes away and they're quite a small hospital, but they have just paid because they need to have a neurointerventionist available at all times to be able to pull out the blood clots. And they are looking for other things to do. Oh, wow. So there's been this proliferation of now thousands of these centers and physicians who can perform these types of procedures, oversupply of workforce and not enough, you know, things to do. So, Got you. you know, and I, 
our technology is now becoming very exciting in the field. So otherwise we would have had to build out that market and we didn't have to. So it's a really, you know, lucky and fortuitous point to how this is going to roll out into the market. I want to get back to your personal story. So you said you were kind of interested in this and then things got exciting and it piqued your interest, but what made you actually decide to try to do this? Because that feels like, it feels like a very, you chose a very, very steep mountain to climb. Yeah. I guess my friends have always told me that I would take the most challenging and difficult path <laughs> to something. I guess that's when you know you're tackling a hard problem. Yeah. Maybe. But after I read about that brain gate piece, so I finished my internal medicine training, but I hadn't even started doing brain medicine yet. So I'd spent four years learning how to be an internal medicine physician. And then in Australia, you can only then apply for neurology residency. But I took a year off because I was a bit bored of medicine and I, I was getting itchy. And so I took a year off and I went traveling for the year. And it was a big, you know, one of those kind of years where you learn a lot about yourself. And I was traveling on my own to Africa and the Middle East. And, but then at the end of the year, I finished up for three months in the US. Mm. And my goal in that three months was I'm going to figure out what it is, what my mission is going to be. And the way I thought about that was I'm going to choose an area to do a PhD in because you do a PhD because you want to contribute and learn something that no one has ever figured out before. And at the same time, I was thinking, I also, this blood vessel area in, in the brain is actually super cool. I, that, I feel like that's going to be, that's going to develop as well. Right. And I'd read about BCI. So that was sort of in my head. And I'd had the exposure from transcranial magnetic stimulation. And that was gave me a little bit of an education about the motor cortex, how the brain controls movement. So all those things were washing around in my head. I then shot out 200 cold call emails to all these different professors and a whole range of different people. One of them was this guy called Jeffrey Ling, who was the director of DARPA, the US oh, yeah. um, Defense Advanced Project Research Agency. And he had started this program called Revolutionizing Prosthetics, which ran from 2008 to 2012. And that was, uh, this was 2010. So he was halfway through that program. And the goal of that program was in the US defense was at the time, desert warfare was happening. IUDs were blowing up really good body armor, head armor, and US soldiers were coming home with uh, loss of limb injuries because of the explosions. So the problem was, how do we repatriate US soldiers who have lost their limbs? And so revolutionizing prosthetics, the goal was to build a robotic arm that could be used by the US soldier. They did that. There's this thing called the DECA arm, D-E-K-A. You can look it up. It's pretty awesome. Mm. But the problem then was, how does the soldier control the arm? You've got this incredibly powerful robotic arm. How do you attach it onto the body? And then once it's attached, how do you get the control of the arm is really complicated. So they said, okay, let's build a program that can get signals out of the brain to directly control the arm. That would be the obvious next step. And so that's how this program called Reliable Neural Interfaces was born. And it was, this is again, just fortuitous timing. Jeffrey Ling was part of the emergence of that program. Jack Judy from University of Florida was put in charge of this new program, Reliable Neural Interfaces or RENET. And that was the time when I approached Jeff Ling and I said, hey, 
like I see you guys and basically I didn't have like I was I remember I went to the meeting with Jeff Ling and I it was just a cold call I didn't really have I didn't know what I was going to say to him and I thought shit he's giving me a meeting what am I I don't even know what I'm going to say I remember I was in New York I had to get to Arlington yeah I think no no he's in Walter Reed he was in Walter Reed so I I was in New York staying at this like horrible moldy like hostel bunk bed room and I remember I put my head down on the bed at 11 p.m. And I'm like, wait, I need to prepare something to take to this meeting with him. Yeah. So then I spent the next couple of hours drafting like this concept of putting in electrodes through a blood vessel. And then I got up at 4am, took the train to Walter Reed, met with Jeff Ling. And I said, hey, like you guys are doing cool stuff, but why are you doing open brain surgery? Like, look what happened to cardiology. You could just bring it up through the blood vessel. And he just said, cool, no one's doing that. Uh, we're about to launch this program called Reliable Neural Interfaces. You should go and meet Jack Judy and see if they'd be interested in funding your concept. And that was it. And then I went back wow. to Australia. I wrote it. And he said, he said, by the way, go and get a patent because you should really patent that. And this, is, this was a lesson, like this, another fortuitous thing. If you're a doctor or a physician or an engineer or an academic, anything you think of is owned by whoever employs you. Uh, that's how patents work. It just happened. I was traveling the world, like being frivolous. And so my patent, my invention was owned by me, which is an unusual kind of place yeah. to be. And that was really important for the origin. Cause then I got back to the university of Melbourne. I had a patent. I convinced Jack Judy to pay for the first million. So 1 million from DARPA. And then that turned into 5 million and that turned into 15 million from us governments was how we kicked off our program. I met Nick Opie, the co-founder, but because I had written the patent of my own accord with my own name, it gave me huge leverage. And so initially the university said, you can't form a company. You don't know what to do. And I said, well, you can't form a company without my patent unless I agree to it. So we're in this stalemate for a period of years until I convinced them that I'd have to just figure it out and they're going to have to give me the license. That's kind of amazing. I love the image of you in a, some dingy hostel in New York, just being like, "Oh shit, I gotta come! I've got to come up with an invention idea right now." <laughs> you know, there's, it was on Upper West Side. It was like twenty bucks a night. You know, there's carpeted rooms where there's mold and the lamp doesn't work. It was kind of like that. Yeah, that's amazing. Um, before I let you go, the the DARPA thing is really interesting because we've written about this here and there in the past, but I feel like most people don't understand just the huge role that DARPA and the Pentagon and US government generally plays in these kind of things that ultimately become hugely transformational technologies. Often it can be traced back to some significant government funding and support in the beginning. Internet, GPS, rockets, all US government, DARPA, like NASA spun out of DARPA, and now they've spawned BCI as well. So that's right. It's incredible. It's incredible what DARPA have done in, as an organization, I think one of the most incredible, not, there's nothing else like it in the world, like DARPA. Yeah. And then lastly, a little futurescaping, say what's with 2022, 2045, 2050. What does the world look like in terms of BCI? So the one thing is, what does the digital world look like? What does the metaverse look like in 2050? That's a hard thought experiment. But it's probably not unreasonable to suggest that it's going to be ubiquitous and powerful. And there is going to be a reliance on our physical bodies to engage with that system. And BCI will 
continue to improve probably on some kind of a cadence like Moore's law of improvements in ability to engage with the digital world, which means that the threshold for the desire for a failing human body to get that technology will drop and drop and drop. And given that we already have a surgical infrastructure that can deliver these at scale, I think this is all means that over the next 20 or 30 years to 2050, this is going to become a very common technology that helps you engage in the metaverse. Bananas. Wow. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank Tom for taking the time. I want to thank you all for listening. And I know I should do this every week, and it just occurred to me, I was taking a walk yesterday, and I was like, I never mentioned my fabulous producer, Daisy. Producer Daisy. Thank you, Daisy, for making the magic happen every week and helping us bring these fabulous ideas and crazy kind of companies uh, to the world. So thank you, Daisy. Thank you all for listening, as I said, for spreading the word, telling your friends and neighbors. Um, For the ratings and the reviews, please keep those coming. They really do help. Um, And that is it for me this week. I will be back next week with yet another edition. We have another fun one coming up, so do um, keep your eyes out for that. And in the meantime, you can find me in thetimes.co.uk or on the Twitters at Danny Fortson, or you can email me, danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. Have a fabulous week. Talk to you very soon.